I hope you're all well, and uh, so your test kiss slide this week, I guess it's going to be a gigantic, uh, gigantic thing. Oh, someone has a birthday. Someone's not here. Okay, the Seder. Rosh Hashanah, the Chassidah, so I hope, I want to wish you all a uh, Shana Tova. I don't know if, uh, if that's what you say, but okay. Uh, anyway, uh, I am I'm happy to announce that I am... I am fulfilling my uh, promise to start a new topic today, so we're not going to talk about uh, Aguna. And uh, we're going to move to medical ethics. Uh, but since uh, we have the other group coming next week, so I'm going to talk about... No, no, I am going to talk about the medical ethics, but I'm going to talk about a preliminary medical ethics issue that is a self-contained unit that hopefully will not have to carry over. And that is all of us know, of course, that uh, saving a life is very, very important in Judaism. The Hebrew phrase you're all familiar with, pikuach nefesh. That means in order to save a life, not only are we permitted to desecrate the Shabbos, and it's not even desecration, it's a, it's a mitzvah, but we are commanded to do so. So if someone, God forbid, has a heart attack, we drive them if we have to. If someone needs to eat treif, on Yom, uh, eat at all on Yom Kippur, uh, they, they're supposed to eat on Yom Kippur. If they have to eat treif, because that's the only food that's around, they eat treif. This is the concept, pikuach nefesh overrides all of the Torah, except for the big three prohibitions. There's only three commandments that a person must be willing to die for before they transgress, uh, that is idolatry, turning away from God, uh, forbidden sexual relations, like rape or incest, uh, even that has some complications, and murder, you cannot kill. And if I go over to you and I say, kill him or I'll kill you, you can kill me because I'm threatening you, but you cannot kill an innocent person to save your life because, as the Chazal say, who says your blood is any redder, any better I don't know why they always translate it, uh, who says your blood is sweeter. The, 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 the Aramaic word is not sweet. The Aramaic word is red. Okay, I, I don't know why they always say, who says your blood is sweeter, but it's, Chazal says, who says your blood is redder uh, than the other person. But other than that, Shabbos, Kashrus, Yom Kippur, uh, all of those other halachot, we clearly violate in order to save a life. And it makes no difference if we can save the life permanently by curing the person or even if we could save the life by 10 seconds. Meaning to say, if by violating Shabbos I can keep somebody alive for another minute, I do so. Duration makes no difference at all. Did you want to say? Yeah. I have a question just about the term. Because yes. Is it the same like Hebrew word as pokeach like opening, giving sight to the blind? Yes, very good. That's so what's a good the connection? connection between giving sight to blind people and saving life? No, no, because the word, the, the, the word pokeach yeah. is a verb that means to open. Okay. So pokeach ivrim doesn't, just means he opens like the, eyes. the eyes of the blind. So pikuach nefesh means you're opening the life. In other words, the life which would be taken away, you're giving him back his life. So pikuach is not specifically connected to eyes. I could say, for example, pokeach osnayim. Hashem opens up your ears. Pokeach just means, it's like poteach. It's the same, except a different one. You know, one is a tough and one is a kuf, but it's the same uh, verb. Okay, lifkoach. Okay. Alrighty, so all of us know this is called pikuach nefesh, and this is a fundamental principle of the Torah. Yeah. Are you allowed to break, like, Shabbat and Kashrut? 
To save any life or only Jewish uh, life? Oh, okay, okay. You hit on something that's uh, very, very controversial, very, very difficult. Um, yeah. Why, why do you always ask hard questions? Uh, uh, but the thing is, I'm going to give you the letter of the law and then how halacha practically works. Under the letter of the halacha, as codified in the Gemara, the Mishnah, the Gemara, and in the Shulchan Aruch, you cannot violate Shabbos to save the life of a non-Jew. Uh, this is Beferish, that if a building collapses and you know that the person is a non-Jew, you are not allowed to clear away the rubble because the heter, the heter, the dispensation to violate Shabbos is only to save the life of a, of a Jew. That is what the Shulchan Aruch says, which would mean in theory, in theory, in theory, it's a theory, uh, if a non-Jew has a heart attack right in front of me, I would not, on Shabbos, I would not be allowed to pick up the phone and call the ambulance. That is the theory. Now, ethically, that's very, very difficult. In practice, we do. We do violate Shabbos for a non-Jew. And the reason that's given is the following. This is something called Ava. Uh, Ava is not a, a woman's name. Uh, Ava is, <laughs> means hatred. Ava, like Oyev, hatred. And there is a fear that if we were not to intervene to save the life of a non-Jew, non-Jews would have a deep, deep hatred for Jewish people, and therefore, God forbid, there could be a pogrom, they might murder Jews in retaliation. So because of Eva, as a practical matter, we do desecrate the Shabbos. Now, here is the question that will still bother you undoubtedly, and that is, okay, that's a loophole answer, which means to say, okay, we do it, but we're really not doing it to save the non-Jew. According to this halachic reasoning, we're really doing it to save Jews from a pogrom or a retaliation. So is it, are we making the statement that the lives of non-Jews are not as valuable as the lives of Jews? Even with the rubric of Eva, you're still making that statement. And that sounds racist, that sounds, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So there will be an ethical uh, problem for some people. Now, some people will answer, yeah, a Jewish soul is more valuable. They will simply say that. In fact, uh, the Tanya himself, uh, the Alter Rebbe himself, seems to follow that, that view. Others say the following idea. They say, it's not a question of which life is more valuable, but rather, we violate Shabbos only for people who potentially will keep Shabbos. Now, even if the Jew is not religious and doesn't keep Shabbos presently, but there is a potential of keeping the Shabbos, and therefore we violate one Shabbos in order that he should keep many Shabbos. A non-Jew doesn't, doesn't keep the Shabbos, and therefore Shabbos does not yield for people who are not connected to the Shabbos. So that's not a question of who's better, that's just a question of Shabbos only yields for people who have a potential of keeping many Shabbos. But the bottom line is, therefore, if, God forbid, I hope you never confront this situation, if a non-Jewish person gets a heart attack in front of you on Shabbos, you are allowed to take your cell phone and dial for the ambulance to pick him up. Now, whatever the reason is, even if it's because of Ava, Ava is considered to be a heter. Although it's interesting, some people have posited, it's a little tricky, that if you're mamish in an isolated area, let's say you're on a desert island, and it's only you and the guy, putting aside yichud problems. Okay, so so woman, you and the guy, and you know you're like Robinson Crusoe. You're going to be there your whole life, 
and the guy gets a heart attack, so maybe you're not allowed, you know, in that case, there's no Ava because there's no other people that are ever going to be aware of it. All right. So that, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's discussed as a possibility. Okay, so uh, so that's kind of where we're at, and and I, I want you to I want you to know that there were even great great rabbis who considered this to be actually the most difficult ethical problem in halacha. Uh, so your question is a very difficult one that they've you know they say they don't understand. Hashem gives us the halacha, we of course accept it, but there are going to be corners of the halacha that are very very hard to to understand. But at least be aware that practically we will we will violate Shabbos uh, for a non-Jew. Yeah? If there's a doubt in like a building that's... Like oh, okay, yeah, yeah, very important point. If there's a Jew or not... If there's the slightest, doubt, the slightest doubt that he might be Jewish, you certainly desecrate Shabbos. It's only when you know 100%. And today, by the way... Yeah, so today, no, by the way... If it's a building that like, collapses and yeah. there's a whole bunch of people there and there's like an op- there is a chance that it was like someone that's... Then, of course, you desecrate Shabbos. That, that is 100% for sure. So, so it may be very rare. It's very rare. You know, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I have met myself. I have met uh, Catholic priests. I have met uh, Protestant clergymen who were, who were Jewish, who were halakhically Jewish. Uh, sometimes they knew it and they had converted. And sometimes, let's say they had a Jewish mother... And their father was the dominant presence in their life, and they were raised as non-Jews, and they are Jewish. So the truth of the matter is, as a practical matter, you 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 really almost never know. You know, even the Pope. You know, the, I don't know about this Pope, but you know, the Pope uh, might be Jewish. There have been Jewish popes. You know, whatever whatever it would be. In fact, uh, there was a cardinal. I think he's not alive anymore. The Cardinal of Paris. He's kind of tragic a little bit. Uh, he was a. Jewish child during the Holocaust who was uh, given to a Catholic orphanage and he became you know his parents were killed he became a Catholic and he became a priest and he became a cardinal and he was in line to be a Pope he was one of the candidates to be Pope so we would have had a not that it's good for us but we would have had a Jewish Pope right before this one Uh, and in fact it was very controversial Uh, this Pope says Kaddish not this Pope the Cardinal this Cardinal says Kaddish on his parents' yard site, apparently he knows the day his parents were killed, and he even visited Yeshiva University. Very <laughs> strange, he showed up. Okay, but uh, so, so the point you're making is a very good point. You never know. So that alone would mean you would desecrate uh, the Shabbos to save a potential uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish life. Okay, um, yeah. Alrighty, so we know, therefore, there's a Bikuach Nefesh aspect, and this is derived from a number of sources, one is, uh, the Torah says, V'chai bahem. The Torah was given for life. And we darshan, we have an interpretation, and not for death. Meaning the Torah was not given so you'll die by it. The Torah was given so you'll live by it. And that's why pikuach nefesh is uh, so important, right? That's why when people drink their whiskey, they say, L'chayim, right? That the whole Torah was given, L'chayim, so that we should... Uh, we should live. But there's another verse you need to know as well, and I'm, I'm sure you know this Pasuk. In Vayikra Perek Yates, uh, the Torah says, Lo, chapter 19, Lo ta'amot al-dam re'echa. Do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. Now this is an extremely important mitzvah. Let me start off uh, with uh, secular law for a moment, and then we'll, you'll see the difference here. Um, 
Imagine that you're an Olympic swimmer, you just won your 10 gold medals for swimming, and you're walking to your victory dinner, and a four-year-old kid falls into the water, and you could, you know, you're walking by a, by a lake, and you could easily dive in and save the kid, but you don't want to get your uh, dress or your tuxedo, whatever, whatever, man or woman, whatever you're wearing, and therefore you let the kid drown. You could have easily saved the life, but you didn't want to get uh, your clothes wet, or whatever it would be. Are you, under secular law, have you committed a crime? Uh, can you go to jail for that? So the halacha is not, uh, not the halacha, the secular law is no. Almost really certified. Well, um, uh, cer- certainly under classic, classic, uh, what's called common law, sometimes may have been changed by a statute, whatever, but by classic uh, legal principles, you are only liable when you hurt somebody. You're not liable for failure to intervene. There is no obligation under the secular legal system. For EMTs, they do. Huh? For EMTs. If that's your job. If that, that's no, your even job. if you're off-duty. No, no. I, I, well, well that, that's, that's a change, meaning there, there have been some changes in the law. But if you go back to what's called common law, common law means the original legal principles that were in effect for centuries. Uh, going back to Roman times, there was no duty to, to intervene. Lo Samad al-Damreyacha is making the opposite point. It's saying that it's not enough as a Jew that you didn't hurt somebody. You have an obligation to intervene when someone is suffering physical harm, physical danger, emotional, financial, whatever it would be. Now, obviously... What type of intervention you do depends on your abilities. I mean, um, I wouldn't be expected, uh, nor would you be expected, to do brain surgery on somebody because we would probably mess up. So everything is according to what we're able to do. But you cannot simply close your eyes. You can't simply walk away from a situation. Now, it's one thing. If, if there's a mugger who's, who's like threatening to kill somebody, I, I wouldn't say you have to intervene because you don't have to endanger your life. If it would be a danger to your life, you're able to back off. But other than that, you know, you have to call the police or do something. You may remember there's a famous case. This is way before you were born, but maybe you've heard about it. A very, very famous uh, case, Kitty Genovese. It goes back, it goes back all the way. Well, you, 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 you heard that case? In psychology. Yeah. Okay. So this was a very famous case about a, a woman, this goes all the way back in the 1960s. Uh, about a woman who was a- attacked in the parking lot of, of her building and she was killed. And uh, there were like, I don't know, a hundred, I don't know how many people who, who saw it and uh, nobody nobody called the police, no one called 911, etc. cetera, uh, because either they thought other people will do it, each person thinks the other person will do it or they didn't care or they said, I'm not going to get involved, whatever it would be. So the Chiddush, the, the important teaching of Losamad al-Dam is that it's not enough for you to say to Hashem, I didn't hurt somebody. You have a chiyuv to alleviate the person's distress, and this applies to everything, by the way. Uh, this applies to medical issues, this applies to danger, this applies to financial loss, this applies to shiduchim. This is actually a very important issue in marriage. You know, all of you know, that there's generally a very strong prohibition against Lashon Hara. You don't say negative things about people even if they're true. Now let's say uh, somebody is going out with a guy, let's say a friend of you is going out with a guy, and you know that the guy uh, abused his first wife. You know that. How do you know that? But you know that. So the question is, are you allowed 
to tell the girl, don't go out with this guy because he's, a, he's an abuser. Now, some from people might say, oh, yeah, I can't say anything, it's Lush and Hara. But that would be stupid and wrong. Because not only, <laughs> not only are you allowed to give over that information, you are obligated to give over that information because of the commandment, do not stand by idly over your friend's blood, meaning don't let them go into a dangerous situation. Now, there are going to be rules here. It's a complicated area. You have to know, you can't exaggerate. You know, there are issues, you have to talk to a rabbi or a rabbitson about this. But as a general rule, you know, if you know negative information about a prospective mate, uh, it is not Lashon Hara. Well, you can talk, you describe it two ways. Either it's not Lashon Hara, or it's Lashon Hara that is permitted because it serves the constructive uh, uh, purpose of protecting people from harm. Same thing in business. Uh, if you're about to enter a partnership with somebody who was in jail for embezzlement, right? so I'm allowed, I'm allowed to tell you about that because you need to know. Now, you might decide the guy is rehabilitated. You know, that's your decision, but you at least have to have, have to have the information. Listen, a woman might decide to marry the abuser anyway, for whatever reason, uh, if he could somehow convince, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into that whole issue. Uh, can people's personalities change? Psychologists are uh, in disagreement over, over, over that situation. But at a minimum, the, the, the other side has to know this information. Uh, to be able to make a decision. So this is the lo samad al damriyacha. So what, what this means with bikuach nefesh is, not only does bikuach nefesh permit you to violate Shabbos, but because of the mitzvah of not standing by idly over a person's blood, you're obligated to, it's not even correct for me to say you're obligated to violate Shabbos. That, that is actually not a correct way of speaking because it is not a violation. It becomes God's commandment. I even heard a story once that there was a, a very, very devout religious old man who was ordered by the doctors not to fast on Yom Kippur because of his medical condition. And he was a righteous person who, who, who had fasted Yom Kippur his whole life. So he fasted anyway. He died, died as a result. And one of the great rabbis, Rebekah Kamenetsky, ruled that the family should not sit shiva for him because he was treated as committing suicide, because he did not follow the halacha that you have to take care of your life. The same way that the Torah commands you to fast on Yom Kippur when it does not affect your life, the Torah says you must eat on Yom Kippur. Uh, now, this is a little tricky. Uh, if you remember the situation, well, I don't know if you remember, but you may have read, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up because I just read this literally just uh, this minute, the biography of the Rebbe by uh, Tulushkin that when the Rebbe had his first uh, heart attack, so uh, the doctors wanted to take him to the hospital, and he refused to go. And the doctors really thought it was very, very dangerous for the Rebbe not to go to the hospital. And the Rebbe said that he didn't want to leave, and whatever, they finally brought, the, they kind of brought the hospital to him. Uh, uh, now there, you know, again, the, the judgment that a Rebbe makes is, is different than the judgment we would make. I mean, a normal person is not supposed to make those types of judgments, but the Rebbe knows. I mean, the same way, in fact, this is what the Rebbe said, the same way he advises everybody else about life and death matters, and they trust him, so he could advise himself as a life and death matter as well. But as a general rule, a person cannot, 
you know, a person has to be very, very strict on this idea of pikuach nefesh. Yeah. Yes, I, I, actually, I'm going I'm to get to that. The, answer, the short answer is you don't, but usually you do. <laughs> the, 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 again, this is going to be another example. This is another example of the letter of the halacha and, and the way it's applied. It's, it's going to be a little different. Yeah. So why is there a, a halacha in Shohan that's like, you, ne- like with the, you can only break halacha to say the Jews. Yeah. Why is that halacha in place if it's literally never applicable? Like, why did it come there? To yeah, it, it is a good question. And number one, as I say, it may be applicable on a desert island, meaning as a theoretical halacha. So theoretically... Yeah. It holds true. The only basis yes. for it not holding true is like the fear of hatred. That's correct. That, that's, that's, what the only, that's that's the only basis we have. Or 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 we don't know. Okay. Yeah. 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 I feel like there's only so so many people like they think that they're non-Jews, but like the chances of being Jews. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, if it's a sub, but again, the halacha's theoretical principle is a true principle, except if you don't know, you don't know, and if, even if there's a one in a thousand chance, you desecrate Shabbos today. You know, you can't, you can't tell anything. You know, uh, the go- the guy with the name Goldstein could be the guy, and the guy with the name O'Brien could be the Jew. I mean, you you don't uh, you know. Uh, in fact, the ra- the rabbi, the reform rabbi, might be the guy, and the Catholic priest might be the Jew. You know, everything is all uh, is all mixed up, uh, all mixed up today. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is important. Losamud al Damreyacha uh, establishes the idea. In fact, it's a very, very important idea because the secular system perceived of people as individuals, meaning as long as I don't hurt you, as long as I don't, I'm not the one that punched you in the nose, I have no responsibility towards you. Meaning you can drown, you can die, it's none of my business. Right? That's what secular law is predicated on. That my only point is I can't hurt you. Judaism, Torah, envisions society in a very, very different way. We are connected. We are one. The root of our neshamas is one. And therefore, what happens to you is also happening to me. I have to love you like me because you are part of me. And therefore, if you're hurting, I'm hurting. It's a whole different idea. And therefore, it's not enough for me to say, I didn't do it. Right? In fact, that's what Cain said. I mean, Cain killed Hebel, the Misa. But what was Cain's defense? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is, yeah, you are. <laughs> I mean, the whole, the, 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 whole claim, the whole claim was not true. You know, you are your brother's keeper. Can that's you explain that story? Huh? Can you explain that? Well, that would take me into a, into a digression. I mean, uh, what, what, part, what part are you thinking about? No, can you just say it? Oh, the story? Yeah, very quick. Yeah, yeah. The basic story was, if you remember, uh, there are two brothers. Adam and Chava had two sons born the same day, Cain and Hevel. And Cain uh, was a farmer and Hevel was a shepherd. And Cain brought a korban to Hashem from his vegetables and they were inferior and Hashem did not accept it. And Hevel brought from his sheep the best and Hashem accepted it because Hevel gave Hashem something better. And Cain was so infuriated that Hashem did not accept his korban. He was jealous of his brother. He killed his brother. So Hashem, of course, knows what happened, but Hashem wants Cain to admit. Hashem says to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then Hashem says, the blood of your brother is crying to me from the ground. And uh, if, if you remember, Cain was cursed that he would be a wanderer. He would never find peace. Nav and Nod, uh, and he was afraid that people would kill him because he was the first murderer. 
So Hashem made a mark on him, or some say he gave him a dog, a guard dog, uh, that that was his security, that people should not kill him. Eventually, Kayan did have children, grandchildren, it lasted for a few generations, but then the the line of Kayan was wiped out, so no human beings come from Kayan anymore. That was marked, that was destroyed after seven generations. Yeah? How far, um, I guess, two-part question. When you say that Jewish law holds us accountable for not saving the person we could have saved, um, one question I have is how far does that extend? Like how much do you need to be looking for opportunities to save a life? How much do you need to know? Like when a beggar on the street is asking for money, maybe they need it for life-saving medicine. Like maybe they just want to, you know, buy booze. Um, and then the second thing is like how practically does that play out? Like let's say you do determine that like I had the opportunity to save a drowning child and I didn't. Then what happens? Okay, so, so let me answer the second question first. In other words, in spite of this mitzvah of don't stand by idly, it is clear that a failure to save is not the same as actually murdering. In other words, halacha does say that the guy that stuck the knife in the person is much more guilty than the person who failed to rescue. So halacha does make a difference in that, uh, in that way. Uh, but, you know, uh, nobody's going to say, to take an example, that you are obligated to go to medical school right, right now. You must go to medical school because as a result of your going to medical school, in 15 years, you're going to be able to save a bunch of lives that you otherwise won't be able to save. No, no, one, no one is going to take it that, that far. Uh, but once you have a situation, you've got to intervene. By the way, this is also the basis for, for Kirov. Kirov is, you know, you try to draw other Jews or shlichas, whichever language. By the way, the Rebbe didn't like the word Kirov. You know, this is actually a very beautiful point. Where I come from, we use the word Kirov all the time, but the Rebbe had a beautiful point. The word Kirov means to draw a Jew closer to the Torah. So the, the implication is the Jew is far away and you have to draw him near. So the Rebbe said, no Jew is ever far away from Hashem. They just may not know how close they are. So the Rebbe actually didn't, didn't like the common term of Kirov, draw somebody near, because that implies he's a rachok. He's far until you do it. That's actually quite, quite a beautiful, a beautiful thought. But whatever you call it, just a matter of nomenclature, whether you call it Kirov, whether you call it Shlichus, but the concept that a Jew should try to expose other Jews to the beauties of Torah, that also is, don't stand by idly when somebody's drowning. A person could drown in a lot of ways. He could drown because they're in the water, or they could drown because uh, they're not connected to, to the life-giving uh, source of the Torah, right? So this low time mode has a real a lot of applications. It applies to medical ethics. It applies to Lashon Hara for Shidduch, for dating. It applies to business deals. It applies to Jewish outreach. Like It applies to a million different uh, content, contents. All of this is the idea, I am my brother or my sister's keeper. Yeah. But is, is there pragmatically some sort of consequence Well, it's primarily. Prim- somebody did yeah. drown and there were three people standing on the river watching it, is there some sort of consequence for those three people? Well, of course, it's a great sin, and, and Hashem will hold them accountable. There, there's no earthly punishment that we, we do per se, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, Hashem is the ultimate judge, and this is right. a great, great Avera in Hashem's eyes. Now, I do want to emphasize again, I want to repeat. Uh, you don't have to, you don't and you shouldn't do something that's going to risk your life unless that is your job, like a fireman or a policeman, meaning to say, yeah, it makes no sense 
You know, you don't have to, at least, put yourself in front of the guy with the gun and get the bullet. Whether you're allowed to is an interesting question. But uh, So we're talking about intervention when it would not involve a, a risk to your own, uh, to your own uh, life. Okay? Um, all righty. So that's the idea of lo tamad al So based on this, I want to segue into the notion of suicide. We know, of course, I'm not allowed to kill people. And indeed, I'm, I'm supposed to save a life. But does he, what does the Torah say? I alluded to it a little bit already, but what does the Torah say about deciding to take my own life? Now here, you know that there is a movement throughout the world to legitimate or legalize a suicide, or what's called often physician-assisted suicide, in which you can go to a doctor, uh, and the doctor can give you a prescription, that will allow you to kill you. Of course, a person, a person, a person can kill themselves by a bottle of aspirin, but to kind of specifically take medication that's designed to stop your heartbeat and the like. In the United States, it is legal in at least two states. I don't Oregon know. And Oregon and Washington, that's correct. It is legal in Canada, the whole country of Canada. Uh, it is legal in the Netherlands and in the Scandinavian uh, countries. Like, uh, uh, yeah, is what I'm saying? When they give you that, in the places where it's legal, and a doctor gives you that as a yeah. dosage, yeah. do you have to take it right there, or just put it home with you? No, you take it home with you. You, you actually do it yourself. The doctor is not. I mean, I mean, every. every you give it to someone else. Well, there's an issue there. There is an issue there, but of course, uh, people can. I mean, that's a. But that's an issue with all all types of prescription medications. Now. I'm not going to analyze each particular, every state is different and every country is different. You know, it's not like you come in on your uh, annual exam and say, hey doc, you know, give me a suicide pill. You know, I mean, there, there, there are waiting periods and you got to go through counseling. I mean, it, it may be a protracted process a little bit, but people actually have these, these goodbye parties, these death parties, meaning a person decides they're going to die tonight. So they invite their friends. I mean, it's a little macabre. They invite their friends. They have dinner. They watch a movie. They have their nice... Their friends know. Not, yeah, yeah. They say they, they, they send. They send. They give a final... It's called a final exit party. And, and uh, they, they, they spend time together and people... You know, it's, it must be a very emotional experience. Uh, and they say goodbye. And then, like, at midnight or something, the person goes into the bed and takes the medicine and as they're uh, falling asleep for the last time, you know, everybody's there, you know. So, so why these are... Like, why are they, like, getting assisted suicide? No, be, well, well, because, because it's, it's, it's quicker, it's quicker, because if you simply take a bottle of aspirin, they can pump out your stomach, they can do different things. Uh, by the way, there's a story, have you ever heard of the, of the poetess, the, the British poet, Sylvia Plath? Sylvia Plath was a, was a famous, well-known poet, a very troubled person, and uh, she had tried to commit suicide a number of times, and they always caught her. Someone always came home while she was unconscious, and they took her to a hospital, and the last time she did it, nobody came, and she died. The story goes that she expected, she expected a cleaning lady was supposed to come like an hour after she took the pills, and if that would have happened, she would have been taken to the hospital and her stomach would have been pumped. And right after she took the pills, I'm making up the exact time, she took the pills, let's say, at 12. At 12.15, the cleaning lady called up to say she wasn't, she wasn't going to be there that day. So 
Sylvia Plath did not even intend to kill herself. Uh, she was kind of, you know, it's a call for de- call for attention, a call that I'm desperate, and she expected. She took the pills with the expectation that somebody would be there to take her to the hospital, and that didn't happen. So she actually uh, died without without the intention of committing suicide. How do we know that? Um, I don't know how we know that. Uh, it may, may, maybe maybe it's made up. But this, is, this is what they write when they write her biography. I remember from my college days. Uh, this is how they describe uh, this situation. Or maybe it's a speculation because other times she had done this. Sylvia Plath, P L A T H. Other times she had done it, and they always caught her. So someone someone had speculated. Maybe maybe it's a speculation. Maybe we don't know for sure. But, the Bell Jar. That, that's like correct. Really that, that's correct. She had uh, a long history, a very brilliant writer, uh, but she had a long history of mental, uh, mental illness. Um, okay. So now the problem is that physician assisted suicide is popular, meaning it's a movement. It is a movement that is being discussed all over the world. Now, why is it so popular? Most normal people don't want to commit suicide. The reason basically is a fear that there are illnesses that have tremendous, tremendous pain and suffering attached to them. And uh, the most common reason of physician-assisted suicide is because people feel there's no way out of their pain and suffering unless they simply want to take their life away. Uh, So one reason is the pain and suffering. That's one reason. The other reason is the slogan that is called death with dignity. And that that refers to a situation where there's going to be a constant deterioration of everything, meaning the person is maybe, they're even okay right now, they're relatively okay right now, but they have a type of untreatable illness that'll get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and And by the time they're going to die, they're not going to have control of anything, and they're going to feel humiliated and shameful and distressed, and as a result, they would rather kind of jump the gun, so to speak, and kill themselves before it progresses. Right? So these are the two reasons why people think about this. Uh, one is the pain and suffering, and the other is the uh, deterioration that they anticipate will happen because of the, of the illness. Now, let me start off with the general halachic approach. The general halachic approach is that suicide generally is treated just like murder. The same way you cannot kill another person, you cannot kill yourself because you are not the owner of your neshama. Your neshama belongs to HaKadosh Baruch In fact, there was a famous, famous uh, great rabbi who happened to be a Chabad Chassid, but he was uh, other things too. He was very, Rav Shlomo Yosef Seven. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Probably some of his svarim are, are here. And he wrote a very interesting article in Hebrew around uh, 70 years ago called Mishpat Shylock Laor Halacha. That means the judgment of Shylock according to Halacha. Who is Shylock? So as Shakespearean scholars, you undoubtedly remember The Merchant of Venice. And The Merchant of Venice is a play that Shakespeare wrote. Uh, whoever Shakespeare is, that's another another interesting question. Some say Shakespeare, some say Shakespeare was Jewish. I don't know if you ever heard that, but okay. Uh, and uh, in The Merchant of Venice, Shylock is a Jewish moneylender. 
and he lends money to Antonio, an Italian nobleman, and charges a lot of interest, because Jews charge interest to Goyim, right? This normally is considered to be an anti-Semitic. And Antonio, I'm sorry, Shylock specified, if you don't pay me on time, I get to take a pound of flesh. That, that's become an English expression. When somebody is exacting a very hard deal, says, you're getting my pound of flesh, right? Medieval liposuction. So, and of course in the story, uh, Antonio refuses and Shylock makes a whole speech about uh, how, you know, the world has to be just, you have to follow the strict law, etc. All right, so the whole machlokus among Shakespeare commentators is that, is Shylock uh, a righteous person or is this an anti-Semitic portrayal? That's not important for now, but what Rav Zevin analyzes is, according to how love what if a lender made such a deal? What if a lender said, if you don't pay me, I get a pound of flesh. If you don't pay me, I cut off your finger. If you don't pay me, I get your child as my slave. What would Halacha say about that type of condition in a loan? So here's what Rav Zevin says. Actually, he quotes the Shulchan Aruch He quotes the Alter Rebbe. He says... Any clause that says if you don't fulfill an obligation, your body gets mutilated is by definition unenforceable because the same way you can't borrow money and give a mortgage on somebody else's house because you don't own that house, you can't give an obligation on your very body because you don't own your body. You don't own your finger, you don't own your pound of flesh, you don't own your children, and therefore, you would not be allowed... Again, it's not even a question you're not allowed to do it. It's not a question you're not allowed. You can't do it because it's not yours. Now, this has a lot of repercussions because people raise the question. It's not our subject today, but I'll just allude to it. Let's consider something like plastic surgery. Now, if... God forbid... Why, is this something that's... Uh, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about burn victims. I'm not talking about people that have deformities. That, that for sure, you're allowed to correct. I'm talking about what you might call vanity plastic surgery. Somebody wants to shorten their nose, or they want to fix some other part of their body. Uh, I even understand that uh, sometimes for shiduchim, people do that. It's a, it's a it's a serious problem. That, that, I mean, where have we where have we come in which uh, people have to do that? What, you know, the notion of inner beauty, panemius, chitonius, um, but whatever it is. But 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 again, putting aside the philosophical problems, is it permissible to cut into the body and change the body and you know manipulate the body? It's not your property. You know, it's like saying if I borrowed your uh, your car or whatever, your computer. And I decided I wanted, I wanted to change the systems around because I like it better that way. It's not mine to change. So can I just change my body? So again, if, God forbid, somebody is a burn victim or somebody's deformed or somebody's injured, so the Torah permits medical procedures. The Torah does permit medical procedures. But if it's simply a vanity procedure, you at least have a shayla. I'm not giving you a psak here, but at least you have a question whether you're tampering with God's property and it's not your property to fool around with. Do you remember there's a famous story in the Gemara? I, I really don't understand this story, I'll admit to you, because it's inconceivable that, that a rabbi would talk this way. But it mentions a great rabbi 
who was, uh, he saw a man that looked to him very ugly. So he said to the man, like, uh, how did you get to be so ugly? Nice. I, I mean, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine that part of the story. I, I don't, and the man said, go ask my maker. Meaning, go mm-hmm. ask God. And the rabbi immediately realized, uh, how could he talk that way? And he begged the man's forgiveness, and the man said, don't ask me for forgiveness, ask my maker for forgiveness, because you were insulting him. So there was that concept that, you know, God makes us who we are, and we, we accept it as, as ultimately that's good. So this is an example of that my body is not my own. Now, if my body is not my own, then obviously I can't kill myself because you know, my body is not my property uh, to terminate and the like. So we start off with the premise. We start off with the premise, like everything, we're starting off with the premise that suicide equals murder, right? Not allowed to kill yourself. Now, there's one, perple- yeah, I'll get to you in a second, there's one little perple- uh, perplexing statement. It says in the uh, Shulchan Aruch, quoting from an earlier source, that a person who commits suicide does not even have a share in olam haba, in the world to come. Now that, I think, is a problem, because I understand that suicide is murder, okay, but is suicide worse than murder? I mean, a murderer will get, a, will get punished for his murder, but after he gets punished for his murder, he, does go, he, do, he doesn't forfeit the world to come because of murder. So, even if we equate suicide is as bad as murder, why should it result in a forfeiture of the world to come if even a murderer who otherwise did good things gets olam haba? But it could be because a murderer has the opportunity to do tshuva before he leaves the world. Right? If God forbid a person murdered, they can do tshuva. A suicide cannot do tshuva because if he killed him, you know. Uh, but you can't ask forgiveness. It's like before Yom Kippur, you could ask Hashem to forgive you for all your sins you did between you and Hashem, but he's not going to forgive you. No, no, that, that, that's correct. I, I, I'm not suggesting, I am not at all suggesting if a murderer does tshuva, he goes straight to Olam Absolutely not. There will, there will be, you know, there will be Gehenim, there will be all of the punishments for his sin. He'll have to go through an extremely difficult process, but at the end of the day, uh, the tshuva will not erase the guilt, but Gehenim will take care of him, and then he'll go to Olam after uh, after the fact. Um, it also says in the Shulchan Aruch that when, if a person commits suicide, we do not sit Shiva for them. We do not sit Shiva. We do not sit Shiva in the seven days of mourning. And a suicide is not buried in the regular part of a Jewish cemetery. Wait, what's, who says this? In the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch says. By the way, I, I think, I, think I, mentioned, I, I mentioned tattoos right the other day. People think if you have a tattoo, you don't get buried in a Jewish cemetery. That is not true. A person with a tattoo does get buried in a Jewish cemetery. But a suicide, in theory, again, I'm talking in theory, does not. So it turns out, therefore, the term for suicide, and this is an important term, ma'abed atzmo ladas. Ma'abed atzmo ladas means he intentionally takes his life. Someone overdoses. Uh, so, so, so it depends what the intention was, meaning to say... If somebody just takes drugs 
and they happened to overdose, that is not ladat, that is not an, it's maybe negligent and careless, but that is not an intentional thing. So they're still thing. able to be buried in a register? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah? What about, like, often, like, someone who commits suicide, like, they're not in a healthy mental Okay, so this is the next, this, so, this is what I'm going to talk about right now. So, this is going to be another example. I gave you one example of how the letter of the halacha is actually modified in practice. Right, the first example I gave you was desecrating Shabbos to save a non-Jew. The letter of the law says can't do it. The practicalities of the halacha is we do do it. Now, suicide is very much the same thing. The Shulchan Aruch indeed says suicides don't have olam haba. We don't sit shiva for them. We don't eulogize them. We don't uh, bury them in the regular part of the Jewish cemetery. We have a separate area for disgraced people who commit suicide. But now we have to qualify that by something in a famous sefer called Sefer Chassidim. Now, don't be confused. Sefer Chassidim is nothing to do with Chassidus at all. Sefer Chassidim was written in the 1300s. That's 400 years before the Baal Shem Tov. And this is referring to an earlier group of Chassidim that have nothing to do with Chassidim. And these were a group of people in Germany who were very, very pious and, and righteous, and they were mystics. And uh, the most famous product of that school was a sefer written by Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid, he's called, in the 1300s, and that's called Sefer Hasidim. Actually, Sefer Hasidim is quoted in Hasidic books, just like it's quoted in non-Hasidic books, but it is not connected to the Baal Shem Tov directly. And Sefer Hasidim says the following. This is exactly the point that you just made. The rule that a suicide does not have a share in the world to come and you don't mourn for them and you don't bury them in a Jewish cemetery is only if the person took his life when he had a clear mind, when he was not suffering, when he was not despondent, when he was not depressed. But a person who took his life because of deep depression, despair, and unbearable pain, even though it's still a sin, we're not saying you're allowed to do it, but they're not responsible for their actions because they were considered to be in a state of temporary insanity. Now, we then take it one step further. We then say that in virtually every case of suicide, since a person who wasn't suffering despair or pain wouldn't take their life, then any suicide we encounter, we normally assume, falls within the exception. This is what I call a Mack truck exception. This is a case where the exceptions are much bigger than the rule, meaning to say 99.999% of suicides, we are going to sit Shiva, and they will have a share in Olam Abba because they're acting out of pain and suffering and depression. I myself knew of a, of a rabbi, a well-known rabbi in Jerusalem, who uh, was suffering. It, you know, he was an author, and he had translated Svarim of others, and he was suffering uh, multiple MS, multiple sclerosis, and he was wheelchair-bound. And uh, one day he was in the Mirpeset, and uh, he fell off the Mirpeset to his death. He fell off. Now, his wife, his wife told me privately. His wife, I, I knew the family, his wife told me privately that it was a suicide. He pushed himself off because, he, because living for him was, was unbearable. 
in that condition. And uh, again, it wasn't necessarily public knowledge, but they did observe the morning rituals, they did observe uh, the Shiva and everything else because the husband was faced with an unbearable sense of, of loss. Now, again, please be sure you understand me. I'm not saying it is halachically permissible to do that. And in fact, it is not halachically permissible. I am saying that a person who committed such an avera was not acting with sound mind, and therefore they are not fully responsible for the decision that they did, even though it was an incorrect decision. Yeah. Um, two things. One is, what's the source for saying that a person who commits suicide has no share in Olam Yeah, well, it's in the Shulchan Aruch, but the source is a tractate called Maseches Semachos. Now, I have to explain this a little bit. Maseches Semachos. Semachos is, means happy occasions, but that's the euphemism because I'll use for tragic occasions. Maseches Semachos is not a regular tractate of the Talmud. Uh, rather, it was something that was compiled later, and these are called small tractates, meaning in addition to the official tractates of the Talmud, in the time of the Gaonim, they compiled smaller tractates. For example, Maseches Sofrim, Maseches Geirim, Maseches Sitzes. There are short tractates. They're printed in the Babylonian Talmud, but they're not really part of the Talmud itself. So one of them is Maseches Semachos, which is about the laws of mourning, and that in turn is quoted by the Shulchan Aruch and the, the later codes. Yeah. Okay, my second question is, if we're discounting the thing about mental illness for a moment, like let's say yeah. for some reason this is a person who we believe was of sound mind, yeah. and then if the whole idea is that they were unable to do teshuva before they died, so that makes sense to me by certain methods of suicide. But let's say um, people who have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, some of whom have survived, a lot of them have said, you know, as soon as I started falling, I regretted everything. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a good, it's a good kasha, it is a good kasha, because the khara, a lot of suicides take a little bit of time and there's still some consciousness. In right. fact, do you remember, um, again, this is a long time ago, but you may have come across the name, Jack Kevorkian. Uh, Jack Kevorkian was a doctor in Michigan who was a pathologist but he invented a suicide machine to help people kill themselves uh, this is before it was legal anywhere in other words essentially what it was it was a machine where you hooked yourself up to an exhaust pipe and carbon monoxide would go into your lungs and choke you and he was there. He always was there. He was like he was called the angel of death. He actually lost his medical license and he died in jail. He was actually sent to jail. He was for, for, for uh, being uh, an accessory to murder. Uh, but this was his thing. He had a shita. He had a belief that he was helping people. And what's interesting is that some witnesses testified that once the people took in the uh, carbon monoxide, they were begging to stop. They were begging. They wanted. It was too late. You couldn't reverse the process. But they were really regretting. Uh, right, so you do have that situation. So you're right, that's a good kasha. So in those situations where there is a possibility of tshuva, I, I, I don't have the answer. Why shouldn't you get, I mean, why should it be worse than murder? In other words, it's hard to imagine. I could understand suicide is as bad as murder, but I'm not sure I understand why suicide should be worse than murder when there's the same possibility of tshuva. Yeah? Um, if somebody who's like sick, but they... So this medicine that they don't know if it will help or not. Like somebody has cancer and they're thinking like radiation pills or something, but they decide not to take yeah. it, even okay. though it could help them or could not. Is that Excellent question. I'm going to I'm going to talk about that exactly. I'm going to tal
Um, so if someone's jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and in that moment of like them jumping off, they have that absolute regret of being there, yeah. is that not counted as a sugar for them? Like doing the suicide, if there's that like regret just before they die? I, I can't imagine why. I can't imagine why it would not be that. That that's what bothers me. Meaning, the statement in Masechet Simachot that that in the absence of psychological insanity, so to speak, you don't get all the haba seems to mean that the tshuva is not accepted, but I don't understand why not. Logically, logically the tshuva yeah, should be accepted. We're assuming that they're not in a certain state of mind. That's our assumption. Yeah, yeah, but the question, uh, yeah, that's what we assume. But, but, the, like, so but the question was raised theoretically, if we knew, you know, Hashem knows, you know. And, uh, so I'll tell you this, I was a rabbi of a show for uh, 23 years, and unfortunately, uh, no member of my show committed suicide, but there were parents elderly parents who apparently did and we routinely always uh, kept the regular laws of mourning etc we simply followed the Sefer Hasidim and we assumed that it was uh, not of sound mind and therefore we did not I did not tell the family to deviate at all from what the normal laws of mourning mourning would be okay so as I say this is a Mack truck exception this is an exception that covers more cases than the actual rule itself. So now, with that general understanding, let me mention a number of situations, this will answer your question too, where some things are not considered suicide at all, and you're allowed to do that. Uh, suicide or even murder. Case number one, prayer to die. Interesting situation. This is based on a fa- famous comment of the Ran. The Ran is one of the great medieval authorities. Ran is an abbreviation, Rabbeinu Nisan. So we abbreviate him Ran. Uh, and Ran is a very, very authoritative. The Ran says that if somebody is suffering excruciating pain and they don't want to live, uh, you are allowed to pray. They're, they're allowed to pray and you're allowed to even pray that God should take their life. Now, you're not allowed to do anything to cause them to die, but you can pray to Hashem. Uh, now, some say, why do you have to do that? Why don't you just pray in the generic way, pray to Hashem to take away their suffering. And then Hashem decides. Hashem could decide, I'll take away the suffering by taking away the suffering, or I'll take away the suffering by killing them. In other words, why, why, why would you need to pray specifically that somebody would die when you can just pray Hashem should take away their suffering? That makes a lot of sense, but the Ran does say you can even pray that someone dies, and the Ran gives a proof from a story in Maseches Ksuvos involving Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, you'll remember, is the editor, the compiler of the Mishnah. Great, one of the great, great rabbis. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was suffering excruciating pain. Uh, the, what is, the, seems to be described in the Gemara is stomach cancer. That seems to be what it is based on the descriptions. And there was nothing that could relieve him. In those days, there was no chemotherapy. In those days, it was mamish, un- unbelievable. And the rabbis were praying 24 hours a day that he should live, live, live. So the malach couldn't take his neshama. But his maid saw how much he was suffering. So listen to what she did. She climbed up on the second floor of the Beit HaMedrash. She took a vase and she smashed it. And what happens if in the middle of your davening all of a sudden you hear a vase that's smashed? You stop for one second. 
by stopping the prayer, the Malach HaMavis was able to take the Neshama. Oh. So she actually... Did that happen another time when the wind blew or something? Yeah, but David HaMavis, there's right. a similar story with David HaMavis as well. Uh, so, uh, the Ran says, you see that she's allowed to stop prayers. That's not called a murder. So not even so, right? You can stop praying for somebody. So the Ran says, not only can you stop praying for somebody to live, you can even pray that they die. So, so that's, but as I say, some, some people argue with the Ran, and some people say, the only thing you can pray for is that Hashem take away their suffering, and Hashem will decide which way that goes. Yeah. Yes, that that's that that, that is correct. That, that, no, that that is correct. That's a good point. Uh, you don't pray. Let's say you, let's say you don't like somebody. <laughs> you don't you don't stop pray uh, that they should die. Now you're not a murderer per se. I mean you're not as guilty as as a murderer, but but certainly you're not allowed to pray that somebody should die unless they're suffering. That's the Rans Chiddush that you're allowed to pray. So that's exception, I'll call that exception number one. Exception number two is your question. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to give a whole share of this, and I'm only going to allude to it in, schema, in outline form right now. And that is, there are circumstances where a person is allowed to decline certain therapies that could keep them alive a little bit longer. Meaning, like this. Assisted suicide, where you actually take a pill to kill you earlier, that's forbidden. Right? You can't do something to directly kill yourself. But there are situations where if you were to take certain therapies, your life could be prolonged, but because of your suffering, you don't want to prolong it. So halacha differentiates. Now, medical ethicists differentiate between what is called active euthanasia Euthanasia means mercy killing. Active euthanasia versus passive euthanasia. This is a very familiar term in medical ethics literature. Active euthanasia is a direct mercy killing. Right? You kill a person or a person commits suicide, they take their life because of their suffering. That is absolutely forbidden according to halacha. Can't do that. But passive euthanasia is when a person declines a treatment. Example, let me give you a simple example. Let's say, God forbid, again, Rahman al-Islam, a person has pancreatic cancer. And that's a very, very fast-growing cancer. And uh, the doctors say that without chemotherapy, uh, he will die in a month. That's the prognosis, although you know, miracles can happen. But we can give you chemotherapy that will keep you alive for six months. But in those six months, you're going to suffer a lot because of the chemotherapy. So the person might make a cheshpin. Well, even if I take the chemotherapy, it'll keep me alive longer. But it'll keep me alive in a state of great pain only for a short term. How you define that? So I would rather decline the chemotherapy and die in a month instead of keeping the chemotherapy and live for six months. So the question becomes is his decision to decline chemotherapy considered to be a suicide or not? And the halacha basically says that uh, a person that's suffering great pain, even if he's not un- imbalanced, even if he's not depressed per se, can decline 
again, this deserves a whole share of its own, it will have a whole share of its own, can decline certain types of medical treatment, and that is not suicide. So in other words, halacha does differentiate between actively terminating your life and not getting treatment that could keep you alive a little longer. Now, the active versus passive is not always easy to to find. For example, let's say a person is on a respirator. He's on a breathing machine. If he wants the machine to be disconnected because he doesn't want to be kept alive uh, any longer because of pain and suffering, is that active? Or is that passive? Because this is very tricky. It's active in the sense that you have to do something to shut off the machine. That's doing something, as opposed to not getting chemo. So on one level, it's active. On the other level, it's passive, because what's killing him is the fact that he's not getting something. Meaning, this is not like injecting himself with poison or whatever whatever it is. So the act, again, I'm not answering anything now, but I just want to point out that active and passive is very tricky. You'll commonly hear Rabbanim say, you don't have to put a person on a respirator, but once he's on, you can't shut it off. Right? right? And that's based on the active versus passive. But on the other hand, some say, even if he's on the respirator, fundamentally it's passive because what's killing him is what you're not giving him not what you know you've done to him right so these are very very difficult uh, questions but I just want to point out schematically that not getting medical treatment in some circumstances is not the same as a suicide yeah so are Jewish people not allowed to sign do not resuscitate right so we're going to talk about that uh it depends. In other words, uh, they cannot sign an unlimited do not resuscitate, but certain amount, certain types are going to be okay. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that, meaning what can you decline, what can you not decline, what do you have to get, what don't you have to get, what shouldn't you get, what must you get, right? Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, at length uh, the next, next time. But right now, I just want to introduce the idea that there is a halachic heter, Hector means dispensation for not getting certain types of treatments. Think of my chemotherapy example and the like. Yeah. I have two questions. One about um, did you hear about the case of the girl who um, was charged, her boyfriend committed suicide. Oh, yeah. What an awful, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Charged with murder by text messages. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. What? Yeah, she you know, she encouraged the guy was insecure, mentally imbalanced, and she kept on challenging him. You know, if you're a real man, you'll take your life. What type of wimp are you that you can't even kill yourself? Yeah, but like she was texting with him as he locked himself in the van with the noxious gas, whatever it was, and then she basically was texting him all the way until he stopped responding. Yeah. And she was actually found guilty, I believe. Yeah. So what's the yeah, like my, my big question is like, what's the halacha? Okay, so, so halacha is, 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 is tricky here because uh, there are two levels of guilt in murder. There is guilt of a basin, that a basin could literally sentence a person to death. And then there's guilt in the hands of heaven, Shemayim, God's book. A case like this, where all she did was say words to him, jump, you know, jump, 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 but she didn't stick the knife in him. Uh, a baseman could not convict her of murder. She did not commit the murder. He committed the murder. She at most encouraged it. But uh, in terms of the heavenly courts, 
she is treated as, as a murderer uh, because her words encouraged him and she could have stopped it, etc., or, you know, whatever. So uh, he would not, I'm sorry, she would not be executed based on that, although it's absolutely re- reprehensible. Is there ever a time where, like, where, so, let's say someone planned a murder and sent someone else to do the murder? Uh, so, Is there ever a time where yeah. words could be held accountable? Uh, so let, 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 me, let, me, let me give you a case that will surprise you, unless you know this halacha already. Let's consider, I, uh, you know, so I hire a hitman to kill somebody. I hire an assassin. The assassin kills somebody. Now under secular law, there is absolutely no question that it's not only the assassin that is guilty of murder, but the one who hired the assassin is even more guilty of murder because they hired the assassin. Do you know under halacha, strangely enough, the one who hired the assassin is not guilty of murder? In the, heav- in the earthly court. Why? There's an important rule here. You should memorize the, this rule. This rule is called Ein Shaliach Lidvar Aveira. There is no agency when it comes to sin. If I make you my... No matter what it is. If I make you a Shaliach to desecrate Shabbos, to kill somebody, to do a sin, you are responsible for the sin. I'm not, because my argument is you shouldn't have listened to me. What if it's blackmail? What, 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 what if the, like, the guy blackmails someone else to kill this person? Like, if you don't kill him, I'll kill you. Or your kids. No. Or your kids. Oh, oh, okay, okay. That's another. That's another question. I'll, I'll get. I'll get to that. I'll get. No, no. But you're, you're raising. I'll talk, you're raising an opposite question. But I, but I, the point I want to make is, the rule that there's no shaliach lidvaravera actually says that if I make you my agent to kill somebody, you are guilty of murder. I am not, at least in an earthly court, because the Gemara explains, Divrei Harav, Divrei Atalmud, the words of the Master, God, and the words of the little disciple, me, Divrei Mishaman, who should you have listened to? You're an idiot for listening to me, even if I paid you a million dollars, you should listen to God. So strangely enough, the, the one who hires the assassin is not is not guilty of the murder. Now, in the heavenly court, they are. So Hashem will punish them for sure. So one of the myths yes. that you should die to, even if some murder, so if somebody threatened you with murder. No, no. So, so now let's let's address the second. So you're, you're switching questions on me. So now let's take the second question that was raised. What if I hire the assassin, or I hire even a good guy, and I say, "Kill that person, or I'll kill you, or I'll kill your child, or I'll kill your spouse." And that person acts because they're literally frightened that either they'll die or their child will die or their wife will die or their husband will die. So the question becomes, right? that's the question you ask, the question becomes, is he going to get the death penalty for that? So it's, so it's interesting. So you, your argument is a good argument. You said, well, a person is supposed to give their life before they commit murder. Someone else, like, someone else's life. So it might be different if it's a threat on his Okay, so let me point out what the Rambam says. The Rambam, I'm sorry. What about like only fearing Hashem? Okay. There is something we talked about that in Moses about like the mafia and someone's going to kill you. Like 
Yeah. You know the story about the Friedrich Rebbe, a great, a great, uh, beautiful story? Uh, middle of a Purim Suga, whatever it is, he was uh, speaking. And they were warning him, people were warning him that there's KGB people, <laughs> Jewish informers, in the room. So the Friedrich Rebbe opened his uh, shirt a little bit, and uh, some guy pulled out a gun and said, uh, This gun, you know, makes people. Uh, and the Rebbe said that if you believe in only. Uh, uh, many gods and only one world, the gun scares you. But if you believe in one god and two worlds, the gun doesn't scare you, right? That's a beautiful thing. But uh, here's what the Rambam says. The Rambam says an interesting halacha. This is an amazing dichotomy. The Rambam says, you are not allowed to kill another person unless you kill the threatener, even to save your life and even to save the lives of other people. You can kill the person that's threatening. Yes, 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 yes. But the Rambam says, if you did kill in violation of halacha, you're not going to be punished because you acted under duress. So this is a... This is a no, he will not be. That, that, rule, that rule is still going to be the same. Okay? In other words, do you see the interesting point here? Even when you're supposed to give up your life, if you failed in that duty, you don't get punished for it. It's an interesting dichotomy. The obligation to give up your life does not mean you become a murderer thereby. Yeah. If God forbid somebody is on life support, are yeah. you forbidden from taking them off at like any point, no matter how long? So that, that's what I mentioned. Again, I'm going to talk about this. I, I don't want to get. I can't go over all the details right now. It essentially depends on whether removal of life support is active or passive. Meaning to say. If you define the discontinuation of support as an action, then it is murder. You're not allowed to do that. If you define it as a withholding of a treatment, then it may be permitted. That's why there's a lot of disagreement. There's much, much disagreement. Clearly, you don't have to initiate new treatments. That's why you'll find rabbis will often say, uh, once the person is on a respirator, they cannot be taken off, but you can make a decision not to put them on. But I'll talk about that in more, at more length. Uh, okay? Uh, yeah? I have a friend in medical school who mentioned something to me, and I don't remember the details. Yeah. Something about some group of people, religious or something, that don't, that ask not to, I don't know, have blood transplants if you need it or something. But yeah, these are the, uh, yeah, these are the uh, J witnesses. Okay. They have a thing that they're not allowed. Uh, they're not allowed to get blood transfusions. Okay. So uh, they refuse to get them, even if uh, they're going to die without the transfusion. And he said that they have like a card in their wallet that, like, if an EMT gets to me, like, don't. I would rather yeah. die than that you they give me a blood transfusion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's so that, I, that's correct. That's correct. Well, well, le- le- legally, legally, they can do that. Legally, for sure, they can do that. Halachically, I mean, if they would be Jewish. Halakhically, they generally would not be allowed to, to say that. You can't just say, I want to die. I, I, again, we're talking... Yeah. What about what? Hang on, hang on. My friend is going to be a Jewish doctor. Yeah. Can, what, is, what is he supposed to do? Okay, so here, here's, here's, here we have a very, very easy out. And that is, the mitzvah of don't stand by idly over your friend's blood, which is the obligation to save a life, that only applies to a Jew and not to a non-Jew. And therefore... With respect to non-Jews, 
I am allowed to respect, I'm not allowed to kill them. I'm not allowed to kill them. I'm not allowed to actively terminate their life. That's for sure. But I can respect their decision not to keep them alive. So if a non-Jew writes in a document, I don't want a blood transfusion, then I, as a Jewish doctor, don't have to give him a blood transfusion. What if he's Jew? Uh, if he's a Jew, that's a problem. That, that is a problem. That, that is a problem. Would you be allowed to? Well, again, we'll talk about this. Didn't we also discuss if we don't know you don't know. I, I understand. But on the other hand, uh, when it comes to uh, whether I have to treat them, I, I'm allowed to, uh, to, to follow the majority in the United States. Most people are, are non-Jews. Okay, so, so again, I'm, I'm just mentioning exceptions to suicide. Prayer is not suicide. Declining medical treatment is not suicide. Let me mention the third, pain medication. Uh, here's the problem. Uh, you know, let's take something like morphine. Right? People, people often take morphine towards the end of their lives. Morphine is a very, very powerful narcotic. And for many, many years, doctors were reluctant to give people at the end of their lives morphine because they were afraid they would become drug addicted. Like, what's the difference if there's only two weeks left? Uh, but now they've developed uh, what's called a morphine pump. Morphine pump actually means that the, the patient decides themselves how much morphine they need and when they need it. It's like a pump. They, when they're really, really suffering, they press the pump. And it's been found, interestingly enough, that the patients who, who administer their own morphine take less of it than would be the case with a doctor's typical prescription. And they did not abuse it at all. Now, morphine has a problem. Morphine relieves pain by slowing, slowing uh, the body, including slowing respiration. And therefore, with morphine, there is always a risk, sometimes a significant risk, that it may cause uh, cessation of breathing, which would then trigger cardiac arrest, you know, the heart, uh, right? So the question becomes, can a terminally ill patient give themselves morphine, or can a doctor give them a morphine injection if there is a significant risk that it may cause a shortening of their life? So here the halacha says the following. If the purpose of taking the morphine is to commit suicide, meaning the person is taking morphine to die, that is forbidden, that is suicide. But if the purpose is not, I mean, only, only God knows the purpose, but Hashem knows. If the purpose is not the termination of life, the purpose is the control of pain, then even if it has a significant risk that it may shorten life, it is a legitimate pain relief uh, therapy. And halacha permits relief of pain even when there's risk to life. An example would also be high-risk surgery. Let's say a person is suffering tremendously and the surgery could help them, but let's say they're old or weak and there is a risk in all surgery, and maybe in this surgery especially, that it may cause them to die on the table. Meaning, can a person take surgery that is dangerous if, if successful, it will alleviate pain? The halacha says yes, because it's not being done as a suicide event, it's being done as a pain relief event. Uh, the Catholics, uh, Lahabdil, 
have a term for this. They call this the double effect. Double effect means if you're doing something that has two effects. It relieves pain, but it may shorten life. It is permitted to do it because you're not doing it for the shortening of life, you're doing it for the alleviation of pain. So although halacha, we don't use that particular phrase, but we, the concept is the same, and that is pain relief uh, is legitimate even if it has a risk. Now, how big a risk? What if there's a 99.9% that's going to kill you? So obviously at some point, the risk is so great that we treat it like suicide. In other words, if something is like 99% going to kill you, that's the same as you know, just killing yourself. But if it's a typical 30% risk, well, yeah, I'll try to be more exact next time. So there are three exceptions, so to speak, to the suicide prohibition. One is prayer to die. Second is passively declining treatments. And the third would be actively taking pain relief for the purpose of alleviation of pain where there is a risk to, uh, to survival. Yeah? Um, what about a high-risk or whatever risk surgery where it's not a life-threatening condition? And what I'm thinking of is um, I knew someone who had uh, some sort of growth um, on their like, scalp. Yeah. And doctors basically said, well, we don't know if this is cancerous and we don't have a way of determining whether this is cancerous. And in order to determine that, like, we would need to operate and like take a the biopsy. Is that biopsy, right? yeah. Um, and so, but it was a surgery on the head, so it required general anesthesia, and it was with a child. Um, and so, like the question was, like this, there's no obvious sign. This was a very young child. There were no obvious signs at that time that the child was in any pain or that there was anything wrong. But they were concerned that if they didn't check this growth, it might be a cancerous tumor or develop into a cancer? Well, I, I, I think that's, that's certainly a legitimate medical procedure because if they don't, if they don't check, it may turn out to be cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the child's life might be endangered beyond the possibility of repair. So even though you're doing a risky exploratory uh, biopsy, that would be a classic example of where it is permitted because it is potentially saving saving a life. But even though it's exploratory yeah. surgery, it's still... A- yeah, but I'm making a point that even goes beyond that, and that is even if it's surgery to take away pain. Let's say somebody is suffering great pain and their life is not in danger. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say they have a crushed disc in their back. Very, 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 very painful. But they're not in danger. If they spend the rest of their life sitting in a chair or whatever it is, uh, you know, they're going to be fine. But they can't stand living that way. So they want surgery to correct the disc, but let's assume their medical condition is such that it's a risky surgery. So what I'm saying is, not only can you risk life to save life, you can risk life even to alleviate pain and suffering, and that is not considered suicide. But again, what we have to talk about is, are there percentages here? Meaning, you can't, I mean, just to make it simple, you can't do something that 99% is going to kill you, so we'll discuss where's the line, right? Uh, if it's a 1% risk, for sure you can do it. If it's a 99% risk, for sure you can't. Where in the middle does the calculus change? Yeah. On the topic of plastic surgery, if yeah. you found out that you have like, a very, very high risk for breast cancer, but you don't have it at the moment, could you get a preventative mastectomy? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. This is called uh, prophylactic surgery, meaning uh, we know now with genetic testing, 
that there's what's called the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2. These are uh, genetic propensities for, uh, for breast cancer. So there are uh, women who want to get uh, surgery before there's any cancer at all. They remove uh, the ovaries, uh, maybe hysterectomy, whatever it would be. So the question becomes, are you allowed to have what is called preventive uh, prophylactic uh, surgery? Uh, Again, the machlokas is often the case. Some say that since this is being done to avoid the danger of getting cancer later, and there's a relatively high risk of cancer, so even though you don't yet have the cancer, this is considered to be a life, potentially life-saving therapy, because if you wait until the cancer, it may be too late by definition. Others say that because genetic predispositions are not really certainties, uh, it is wrong to mutilate yourself before there's an actual need, and you have to have a muna that either you won't get the disease or the disease will be treatable if it's detected early by uh, by all the things that the tests that they have, you know, etc. Um, so it is, it is a machlokas. There, there are some rabbanim who are in favor of it, and some rabbanim are very opposed to it. Let me point out, by the way, just to add something to your knowledge, the problem of removal of reproductive organs is not just the general plastic surgery problem. There's actually an, an explicit prohibition in the Torah against removal of reproductive organs. So uh, that's worse than a nose job or, or whatever it would be. Uh, so that's a much more chamor uh, category of halacha. In fact, you can't even sterilize dogs or cats. <laughs> so there's a whole problem about uh, what, what do you do with your dog or your cat. You're not allowed to sterilize uh, animals or people. Yeah. So even if you had like testicular cancer or... No, 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 no. So, so once, no, no, so I want to make it clear. Once there is an actual dangerous situation, then for sure you can do everything. That's for sure. No, no one's questioning that. Uh, the only question is, prophylactically, are you allowed to do it before there's any cancer? Once, once there's cancer, absolutely no problem. Yeah? Is there a halakhic issue with, not really a halakhic issue, but like someone who smoked their whole life and then died from like yeah, that, that, that's, a very, that, that's, a very, that's a very, very good question. Uh, we talk about suicide. We, ha- we haven't been talking about people who engage in things that are not healthy. Uh, didn't exercise, uh, eating the wrong things, smoking. Uh, the question is, are they considered to, to be suicides? And unfortunately, people die uh, younger than they would because of many, many things that, that we do. Uh, well, let me put it this way. Uh, th- there are levels and there are levels, me- meaning to say uh, when you're dealing with gradual processes that operate over many years, in a spiritual sense, Hashem does hold us accountable. But the idea that you don't have a chalik in Olam Haba, that, that does not apply. You know, I saw something, uh, what do you think about this? Just uh, apropos of nothing, but it just struck me as, um, I was at a chasna, and, uh, you know, as all catering halls have a rule, you're not supposed to smoke in the catering hall. I mean, it's just really no, no smoking. But there was an old chassid who really had difficulty walking, and he was sitting at a table, and he was smoking. So a young guy who kept on making speeches about secondhand smoke, and he, you know, he, can't, you know, he can't step, he went over to the person, he took the cigarette out of his mouth, and he extinguished it and like, threw it back at him. And uh, the question is, you know, there's still, in spite of the fact that maybe it's not right for the person to smoke in the hall, but uh, there's still a point of derech You don't simply yank like, the cigarette out of the mouth, huh? Like saving his life. 
Well, you know what they say. That, 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 that one cigarette, the one cigarette is not going to kill you. <laughs> famous, famous last words. Yeah. Of course, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Like See that that doesn't change. That's a separate prohibition. Meaning to say, that according to some opinions, even if a woman is postmenopausal, she still can't remove the reproductive organs. Now, that's a separate rule of a type of mutilation. The Torah prohibits. Okay, y'all be well. Have a good week and. Uh, Oh, 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 what about next week is Hanukkah? Oh, so what like any 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 changes in the oh, um, not this week, no. but two weeks. Not next week. Okay. Well Sunday night. Next Sunday night is Hanukkah, so uh, I guess we finish before I'd love it. Okay.